0: Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest. Dr. Laura Hedrick Ellenson. Dr. Ellenson went to medical school at Stanford University and completed her APCP residency and GI and pathology fellowships at Johns Hopkins, where she stayed on as faculty before moving to Weill Cornell Medicine, where she rose to the rank of professor and was the director of the Division of GI and Pathology. She is an attending physician, a pathologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering, as well as the director of the Division of GI and Pathology. She is widely published and edits texts and speaks nationally and worldwide. So Dr. Ellenson is here as part of the series I'm doing where I'm interviewing GYN pathologists and those in the field to give information to residents and those already in or considering medical training. So Dr. Ellenson, Laura, uh, thank you so much for joining me. How are you?
1: Yeah, I'm as well as can be expected given what's going on in the world, but hanging in there.
0: I know. I wish there was one word for that. COVID okay (laughs) is something I'm working on. I'm sort of workshopping it right now, but I agree. It's like people see you in the hallway and you can't say, I'm not 2019 okay, but
1: I'm 2020 okay. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Sort
0: of throwing ideas
1: around. I agree. We're all just trying to do the best we can, right?
0: Treading water. Yes. So could you tell us more about yourself aside from the info I've provided above, how you came to work, where you do specifically? Did you come from a scientific family and how did you choose medicine as a career?
1: Hmm. So interestingly enough, I did grow up in an academic family. My father was an academician. He was actually an agronomist. My family spent a couple of years in Africa. So I had interesting experiences as a child because of my father's job. And I I think I have two brothers and they both ended up in academics and one sister who became an information specialist. So I think the thread was there. But I'm not sure. I never thought I would go into medicine. And it wasn't late until late in my college career that I realized that along with science, I was interested in combining medicine and science in some way. And I ended up having to take a year off uh, in between undergrad and medical school because I hadn't taken the MCATs. And I worked in a lab during that time period. And I think that was really something that catapulted my interest in combining medicine and science.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. And did you grow up in California? I saw that you did undergraduate there. Were you I
1: did. I was born in Oregon oh. and in in Corvallis, Oregon where Oregon State University is because my dad was there and then we moved to a very remote area of Northern California, where there was a small university and my father spent the rest of his career there. So I grew up in a very, very small town and over the years have progressively moved to larger and larger cities.
0: Um, yeah, you really have. That's yeah. 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 And yeah, um, it must have been an interesting time also to be at Berkeley in the 70s. And I'm sure you have um, a lot of stories to tell. So,
1: yeah, It was um, a great time to be yeah. there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So how did you choose GYM pathology as a specialty? Was there a certain person or experience that inspired you to choose this field?
1: Yeah, I I think with every uh, career move I've made, there's been a person who's been involved. So at Stanford, I ended up working in the lab of a pathologist, and that was how I got interested in pathology as a field and realized that it was a great way to combine science and medicine and then obviously, as you know, at Hopkins, I was there before Bob Kerman came and he arrived when I was chief resident. And um, he made a big impact on me from the very time he arose, just as a person who not only was an amazing pathologist, but a kind um, person and, a, and just a lovely mentor from the very beginning. In fact, just a funny story, when he arrived I started my chief residency, which meant that we signed out all the frozen sections every day as chief resident. And as I was walking in for my first day, I must have looked scared to death. And I ran into Bob in the hallway and he said, it's okay. It'll be all right. Just remember, everybody makes mistakes sometimes. And it was just such a lovely thing to say as I walked in, you know, realizing that I, I didn't have to be perfect.
0: Yeah, and especially at a place like Hopkins, where the expectations for trainees are so high, it, it was probably very nice to hear something like that. I know yeah, from it was. Being yeah,
1: it was the yeah. first time in my entire you know uh, three years at at Hopkins that someone had said that to me. So,
0: oh, that's interesting. So he came; he had just come right as you were maybe deciding what kind of fellowship you wanted to do. So, is that how you? focused on, had you been doing research in GYM pathology before that, or was that really the first time you decided to turn your focus there?
1: No, that even after Bob arrived, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with the exception that I knew I was going to do A basic science fellowship with Bert Vogelstein, and I hadn't Mm -hmm. decided on an area of pathology. So how I got into GYN pathology was really fortuitous in the sense that, like many women, I needed to stay um, in Baltimore for personal reasons. And so I really needed a job somewhere in Baltimore. And Bob happened to walk up to me at a new residence welcome the The year after, and I was working in Burt's lab, and he just said to me, "I'm interested in starting a gyn research part of the division. Would you be interested?" And I was uh-huh. like, "Oh, yeah, but <laughs> I haven't done any official training in gyn pathology." And he said, "That's not a problem." And so okay. I, under his tutelage, as I started signing out GYN pathology, I would meet with him. So I I really didn't do, you know, it was sort of a different world back then, but I, some people did a GYN pathology fellowship and he started one when he came, but I really never did an official GYN pathology fellowship. But you certainly were,
0: were around in a high volume center. Yeah. I know I've, I've, I interviewed Dr. Renette, I interviewed Biggie and I know you all were there around the same time. And I think she, she did an official fellowship. So it must've been sort of being created at that very moment, but it's very interesting to think of the three of you
1: sort of <laughs> pinging yes.
0: around Johns Hopkins at the
1: same time. Well, yeah. Well, Biggie and I started our residency together. We've known each yeah. other since um, the very first day of our residency and have been very close friends ever since.
0: Yeah. It's yeah. just hard to imagine, you know, as a like someone younger than you to me, for me to imagine you two ever not being who you are now, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, <hard.
2: laughs>
1: I guess. Yes, I do yeah. know what you mean. I mean, you <laughs> see people as you know them now, and it's hard to yeah. go back. And you know, yeah, it's yeah. A, even though I don't like to think about it, it was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh,
0: yeah, that's lovely, though. So you're widely published, obviously in gyn pathology. Your publication list is very long and very rich. And among the many areas you've covered of late, it seems you've focused on endometrial cancer, especially relating to molecular findings and targeted therapies. It sounds like you, with your family background and the fact that you knew you wanted to do basic science, that maybe you knew that academic medicine was always going to be for you, but what made you focus on this particular area? And also, where do you see the area heading? How do you think that area of research is evolving?
1: Yeah. I think when you asked a big question like that, it's so interesting because you, know, you don't Often in your own life, think back about how you got where you are. But I, mm-hmm. I think again, it's so clear to me as I think about it that one of the most important things is to be open to to what happens in your life, and and to mm-hmm. what. I mean, I made decisions based on what I was interested in and what I wanted to do. So after my um, residency, I went to work for... I spent four years in a basic science laboratory working with Dr. Bert Vogelstein because I really knew that I wanted to do research and I wanted to do fundamental research and somehow combine that with pathology. And then it was really Bob Kerman who gave me that opportunity. And Bert's lab worked on colorectal cancer, so not exactly and pathology related, but as things would have it and as fortuitous as life can be sometimes... That was right at the time that the DNA mismatch repair genes were being cloned, and they were being cloned in Bert's lab. And we knew about the connection between endometrial cancer and colorectal cancer. So it just really paved the way for this incredible segue for me to move from colorectal cancer research to endometrial cancer research. And so that was how in the early 90s, we started looking at mismatch repair deficiency in sporadic endometrial cancers. and And that really is what opened up the area of interest for me. So again, it was something that that just sort of occurred out of of my interest in following what was um, interesting to me personally.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's hard, and maybe it's hard for you to believe that now in 2020, we're doing universal screening on all endometrial cancers for misinterpreted proteins. That must be kind of surreal. It, it is.
1: It is yeah. surreal. And especially there's a woman in our field a German woman named Annette Stabler I'm sure you've heard her name mm-hmm. and she in the lab at the time um did immunohistochemistry on endometrial cancers for MSH2 and I think it was MSH2 and PMS2 were the two um, immunostains we had, or an MLH1, I believe. And mm-hmm. But she had to do them on frozen tissue, and it was so yeah. difficult. It's a whole different world. Yeah. 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 So I, whole I saw new you world.
0: had been working on an IHC project. I forget what it was on, but it was in like 1989. And I was yes. thinking like, I wonder what kind of manual nonsense you had to go through to get that stuff. To work. You know, oh. it's not like now where you put it on the machine and
1: exactly, you know, yeah.
0: you order it by lunch and it's ready by four. So you have been involved in the editor in my GYN pathology Textbook of choice, beans yeah. So, for those who have never edited a textbook, and it's interesting. Now, I've I've talked to you, I've talked to Bob, I've talked to Biggie. So, the three of you edit it together. Can you tell me how you approach editing? What do you like about it? What could you live without? Oh,
1: that's a big question. I. Yeah. What do I love about editing is that I learn something every okay. day, uh, both mm-hmm. in my role as in editing the textbook and also uh, the journal, which I know we'll talk about later. But it's mm-hmm. I get to read. Other people's approaches, um, to the things that I'm most interested in, uh, how they view, view it, how they put it together. Um, so I get to, it's really an insight, you know, you get, you often get inside your own head how you think about things and how you've developed your thought process about certain things. And being an editor and being able to read, um, the first line of all, of how people put their thoughts together and the research they're interested in and how they approach it is just a, a huge educational experience for me. So I really enjoy that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also nice to to collate information. So being an editor, that's one of the really nice things is in a way you're bringing together, right, all the areas even within our field and, and putting them into one place. And um, th- that there's a real sense of satisfaction in doing that. And I I enjoy the English language and grammar, so editing from that standpoint is also um enjoyable for me. So I would say that's really what I get out of editing and, and obviously to produce things that help the community, right? That that serve the larger community, I think is is very satisfying.
0: Yeah. And are there areas of it that are less enjoyable for you or would you rather just stick to the positive? No, 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 no,
1: no. I mean, the most frustrating thing about everything, right, is, well, especially in the textbook world, I could Uh go on for a long time about that. But the hardest um, part is getting people to turn things in on time and uh, keeping the process moving forward. I mean, you realize we all know how busy everybody is. And it's one of the things I think that's really stressful in academic medicine. And especially now we could talk about it and how COVID's impacted that, especially for people like you who have young children and, you know, are balancing so many things. So it's it's really hard when you ask people to take their precious time to do something that you know is important to them, but you're working on deadlines. And, and that's the hardest part for me is trying to coerce people into, you know, turning their things in on time and and putting it all together. And as you know, there's lots of disappointing things, too. I mean, Ballstein this time was published without an index and we don't know how that happened. It happened on the publisher side and you know, it was a huge fiasco. So there's a lot of downsides um, to taking on projects like that, but the upsides um, outweigh the you know when I
0: first got my sorry to interrupt but you know when I first got my Blaustein and I saw that it didn't have an <laughs> index I I figured it was a mistake but the interesting thing is whenever I was in Dr Kerman's office and I would try to look up something in his book which was always surreal to me right and sometimes I would say well this is in the book and he's like it is
1: <laughs> exactly <laughs> but
0: um, I would go to the index he's like why are you using the index you should use the table of contents at the beginning of the chapter so when I did I saw there was no index I was like huh I wonder if. Uh, Dr. Grumman finally got his way. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. He- well,
1: no. well, at least uh, the way I found out there was no index was horrible. Yeah. I was at University of Michigan giving a talk, and I, I hadn't received my complimentary copies yet. Oh, and no. I yeah. was in someone's office, and they were like, oh, I bought the new blouse, and it's so great, but you know it doesn't have an index. Uh-huh. And I was like what? Huh? And I, I, I sort of had to be like, oh, that's so interesting. You know, I didn't oh, want to, yeah, what's really.
0: The bottom fell out of your stomach. Exactly. You thought, oh no. Oh yeah. Oh. yeah so,
1: well. so there are huge downsides and um, deep breaths. exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's can control everything. Yeah, yeah. I hope yeah. so. And I hope people, and I do think more and more people will use it electronically. And so how you search mm-hmm. for, you know, keywords and information, yes. you know, will be very different, but
0: Control F. Yes. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So you also are the editor of the International Journal for for GYM Pathology. Uh, Can you tell me what this involves? I know it is quite a time commitment, but for those who who haven't done it before, what are the main duties that you perform in that
1: role? Yeah. First, I just want to really say, I mean, it's all the things that I've done in my career. It's it's really one of um, the ones that I feel so honored to to do, right it's, I feel like it's such a service to the community and to be able to be in that role has just been um, really important to me and I feel very grateful that um, I've been able to, to be in that position. So it is a huge time commitment, but I think it's one that is so worthwhile and so satisfying that it, it doesn't feel like that to me. Uh, So it basically involves, um, you know, the machine is pretty well oiled from the publisher standpoint. And so the papers roll in and I get to preview all of them. i I look at, I don't read all of them from cover to cover. At that point, I look at the abstracts. I try to figure out what the paper is about, make sure that it's intact, and then choose reviewers, which are largely taken from the editorial board, but also from people outside of the editorial board, and uh, send them off for review. And then uh, they come back in with the reviews. And I read, at that point, I read the reviews completely and uh, make the final decision about them. And then the biggest part of my job, in the sense of the most time-consuming, this, putting the issues together. And completely, I still read almost every article from top to bottom, word by word for both content and for editing before the, the issue goes out. So that's the most time consuming part of it. But it's been really fun, and I have to say, since um, Dr. Esther Oliva's been president, we've done a lot uh, of combined, and starting with Glenn McCluggage, actually of of combined efforts on the society and the journal part. That's been really fun and important, and you'll see a couple of those things coming out over the next few months.
0: Oh, that's exciting! Yeah, I, I also enjoy the um, how there's you know how you all organize the journal according to the parts of the GYN tract. And then there's also the resident sections with the case reports and things. I think it's nice. It's nice. It's a good mix of different things. So in 2017, in an editorial, you, you write about the series, which is in the journal called The History of Gynecological Pathology. And you also added yourself as a Hamilton fan, although I guess <laughs> in 2017, it was more of like a fervor at that it's point. Not- so I find um, this series very educational. And I always enjoy hearing about how these larger than life folks ended up where they are. So can you talk a little bit about the series? And I know it may have been a while since you've read all of them, but what common themes do you see running through the stories of these leaders in the field?
1: Yeah, first, I want to really commend Dr. Robin Young, because this really was his brainchild. He put it together. Mm -hmm. He wrote the first one and he's written, I think, eight or 10 out of 32 of them. Some Mm -hmm. something um, to that effect but has really been a huge contributor to the series and i think it's really important it, like you said it, it captures uh, the essence of our field over time and uh, i've enjoyed reading all of them and some of them were people i had never heard of um, mm-hmm. before I read the articles uh, which is amazing right it's a pretty small field you think you would know everybody who's contributed to the field but so i for me it's been very educational and the thing that i noticed that runs through it that you know, I think it's harder for people who are coming up in the field to, because the world is so different now, but the thread that I find is that people really seem to do what they loved, and they persevered at it. They just continued to, mm-hmm. you know, to work um, in that field and i and in that area, and it's the one thing that I would say to people, it's still, I think, true, I think... Um, one of the best pieces of advice I ever gotten, it was from actually Bert Vogelstein, but he was said, pick something that you love to do and do it until when people think about that thing, they, that conjures up your name. So you become affiliated or associated with something. And I, I think that's what all those people did. They, they picked something, they worked on it and they continued to work on it until there was some, you know, logical conclusion or, you know, they, they worked yeah. it through till the end. And and I think that's really what drives if you can find something that just really, you're really interested in, and can stick with it, 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 you have a chance to do something that makes a difference.
0: I agree. And I also notice as I'm talking to people like you, that that is also true. And I think the other sort of ingredient in the recipe that is necessary is exposure to that thing. And so if you never know about GYM pathology or you never know about what it is because you never see anyone doing it. Right. There has to be someone who sparks that interest in you. There are a few people who say, I just chose this because I loved it. But most people I talk to say, I saw this person doing it and they did it well. And they were either kind or very intelligent or easy to talk to, or, you know, they basically pointed me in a direction. And I find that so interesting, the the concept of mentorship, not just Exposure mentorship, and then you have to love what you do. So, I don't know. I'm sure there's more ingredients to the recipe, but it's very interesting.
1: No, and, and I uh, think, you, yeah. oh, no, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, you've actually been cited as a mentor for someone who I've already interviewed. So, you know, Dr. Uh, Park. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. She's great. It's really lovely to have the opportunity to work with her again so closely. Yes. But I, I agree. I mean, I think, and I hope that's come out in this thread that people really are the, you know, the thing that changes, um, how you approach things and, and being lucky enough to, you know, come across those people in your career. And I would say also you have to be really open to that too. I mean, I think there's two sides to a mentor mentee relationship, Mm -hmm. right? Is that, um, the availability, like you said, the exposure to those mentors and then being willing to be mentored, um, is is really important. And I think that combination is, is critical. And it's why, uh, and I think that being open and trying, and I think it's, I look at the people coming out now and how the information is displayed. I mean, there's so much more information available, but it sometimes I feel like it's so overwhelming, you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. there's almost too much information. In and that certainly wasn't true when I started in the field. I think it was, is easier. So I think there's a lot of noise now and just trying to dig through that noise. Is important, and trying to get to those people or those places where um, you can find a mentor is really important.
0: Yes, yes, and being, uh, as I've been trying to coach myself, being aware of being open as a person to mentorship, and also being open to seeing mentees and everyone you meet, not just maybe the people who are easy to get to know or or something like that. Just being open to, um, you know, thinking. I remember how I used to see junior attendings when I was a resident and I thought they had their act together. And of course now I'm a junior attending and I do not feel that way, but I remember thinking that people knew what they were doing. And so I just try to remember that people are listening to everything that comes out of my mouth. No, it's
1: it's really true. And in fact, just a funny anecdote. my daughter is in her first year of college this year, mm-hmm. and she sent me a text during the middle of the day, and she said, "Mom, do you ever get people just like emailing you like like cold, asking if they can work in your lab?" And I'm like, uh, "Yeah, all the time." Mm-hmm. And you know, she wanted to contact someone at college, you know, a professor, and I said, uh-huh. "Send them and send them an email." And she sent him an email on the, um, that day, and. Later that day, she called me. She was so excited. She said, he he emailed me right back. And, <laughs> you know, and I think, like you point out, it's really important. I mean, that initiative to approach people, to, to take that yeah. time, because um, most people are willing to help you out.
0: Um, yes. Yes. And- Especially if someone approaches me for help and they seem maybe I don't really care about knowledge base as much as I care about attitude and sort of like willingness mm-hmm. to try things so um, it's uh, it's interesting but you have to it has to be a two-way street that's something that I hadn't really thought about before. That's a good point yeah so talking about careers in medicine and Xan pathology, it sounds like you you know you wear many hats but how do you and maybe you don't have a typical day but how would you say that you spend your typical day as the director of GI and pathology at what I consider one of the sort of big tertiary referral centers in the country, especially for oncologic care, what do you do in a day?
1: So my days are quite varied depending on whether I'm on service or not. Mm -hmm. And I'm on service about 40% of the days, um, Mm -hmm. that I'm there. So a typical day on service is, uh, doing what we all do starting you know in the morning uh it's a little different now with covid cuz everything is virtual but uh in mm-hmm. sign out with with fellows uh sort of the biggest change for me is you know my entire career i worked with residents uh, and mm-hmm. fellows and now it's all fellows so mm-hmm. um working in a very sort of didactic you know way with the the fellows at sign out um talking about cases going through them um and that usually lasts a little over half the day. And then, you know, there's meetings uh, intermingled in the afternoon along with getting the cases out. And um, as we all know, that's a very time-consuming process just going through and uh, signing out the cases. And um, then we have our, both our departmental consults and personal consults. And th- those both take a fair amount of time depending on, you know, what they are, especially the personal consults. But Mm -hmm. days that I'm not on service, um, I try to spend those days being as academically productive as I can, which gets difficult when you also have administrative aspects to your job. But I try to weave both of those um, together um, Mm -hmm. within those days. And, you know, it's unfortunate, right? You're catching me at a time where I, as we were talking before this started, that there's kind of a new normal. It used to be that people would be in and out of my office all day, and I really enjoyed um, that part of my job, again, yeah. from a mentor standpoint, just talking to people, coming up with projects, what people are interested in, and and just having that little bit of chit-chat with people about their personal lives, how they're doing. Um, and that's that's missing in a lot of ways right now. Uh, and then there's, you know, treatment planning conferences I'm involved with, trying to, you know, working with both the medical oncologists and the surgical oncologists in you know, trying to make sure that the services run well and that we uh, fit together, so that we provide the best patient care that we can. So, there, are, all the days are a little bit intermingled, but there is some specificity depending on whether I'm signing out or, or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it sounds um, busy, but uh, this COVID is really changing everything. It's interesting to hear uh, that it's. Uh, do you? So you all do virtual sign out with the fellows as well.
1: Yeah there um there are some of the multi-headed scope rooms open and some people utilize them. I personally haven't felt that comfortable doing that so we do, we do it all over Microsoft Teams. Um yeah and yeah. you know I, you know being a person who I mean I use technology, I enjoy technology, but I'm not really I wouldn't say a technology freak, but it's really been great and it's it's worked out much better than I thought I would, it would. Um mm-hmm from the very nuts and bolts aspect of signing out, right? That all works. And, and you do are able to exchange ideas. And I think the fellows feel like it works pretty well. Yeah. But, you know, you miss that one-on-one and personal contact, which is unfortunate. But uh, well, I think we're yeah. doing the best we can.
0: No, yeah, I agree. I, I We're doing something similar with uh, sign out for me. Some of the folks are doing it in person. I don't feel comfortable doing that. But I think what we're missing are the over the scope moments um, where the answers aren't necessarily coming with the thought processes. I feel a little more pressure to be, Oh, I don't know coherent over Mm -hmm. (laughs) the video chat, but I just remember sitting, you know, with Bob in his office while he would lean back in his chair and kind of stare at the ceiling and think, you know, I'm not sure that kind of thing is happening over Zoom, but like you said, we're doing the best we can. So, yeah.
1: I I Um, agree that personal, you know, the aspect, I mean, and that's why it's harder to mentor. I think Mm -hmm. it, it, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess what I, I would put it and what you're saying is that it formalizes the process a lot more. You lose a lot yeah. of that informal aspect when you can yeah. be in person. And, and I do think, you know, it's harder to get to know people so, and, and yeah. then that makes it harder to mentor people yeah. when you can't get a feel for them in a real personal way. So I, I think we are, you know, paying the price for this, but I think we'll, we'll get through it and hopefully be able to go back to.
0: Yeah. And I personally, I mean, this might not be a popular opinion, but I, I, I like virtual tumor board better than normal tumor <laughs> <board>. <laughs> because I can be with my children upstairs in my house. And then three minutes later, I'm in the basement on tumor board. It's beautiful. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> so it's much better for people who have the pressure to have a uh, work-life balance, which I think has just basically been shuffled around completely during COVID. And it, it, it's nice when there's some flexibility for those of us who need it. Um, I think that's
1: really true. Friends. Like our yeah. ours starts at seven AM. Yeah, it's hard. And and that's really hard. And I think for for people who, especially who have children and young children, it's that part of it. And, and my bet is some of those things won't go away, which will be the positive aspect of all of this. Fingers
0: crossed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's sort of pushed everyone to get used to technology in ways that would have taken maybe another 15 years, like a whole generation of of kids coming up through the system who were basically born with iPhones in their hands. So yes. So my final question, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you being a woman who has risen to the rank of full professor, you're in a small cohort. I actually just saw a study this weekend. I was reading it in ASCP, which I'll link to in the show notes, about women in pathology. We're still outnumbered by men in terms of the, not residents. I think there are more female residents in pathology now than. Uh, male residents, but in terms of faculty. So speaking from a personal experience, I can say that working for less money in academics than in community practice sometimes doesn't make a lot of sense. But like you said earlier, that there's something about academics that calls to some of us, but this pressure to produce can be daunting. So there's all these different aspects. But can you talk as much as you're comfortable about what it was like to be a woman in pathology while you were coming up? And were there others around you who were sharing your experience? I know Biggie was there, but... Maybe you two are the only ones I can think of off the top of my head.
1: So, um, yeah, you know, when I s- saw this question, I started thinking about it, and I and I I think about it on a fairly regular basis, uh, and mostly from trying to understand how best we can support women in academic medicine now. And um, yeah, when I started at Hopkins, I was thinking about this. There was only one; uh, she was an assistant professor at the time in diagnostic surgical surgical pathology and it was a woman named Doctor Reese Mann. And other than that, and you know, I, I was thinking about it and I'm shocked at that now. But we didn't even that wasn't on the radar really back then. It it was just yeah, they were all men. Mm-hmm. Um, all the pro- full professors w- were men. Um, all the associate professors were men. And most of the new young assistant professors were men. Um, so it was a very different time and sort of shocking because even when I entered medical school, there were 30% of us were women. So yeah. to see that um, even when I started was, you know, I, I, looking back now it was shocking, but at the time it just seemed de rigueur, right? It was, it was just mm-hmm. how it was. Mm-hmm. But because of that, I think there's no question there were experiences that we had that, um, if they occurred now, would garner uh, a lot of attention and a lot yeah. of pushback. Um, in fact, I was just remembering back to a time where I was uh, in the pathology suite and a surgeon opened the door and his next statement to me was, well, you're the best looking doorstop I've ever seen you know, out in front of people. Like, those were things that just happened on a regular basis uh, then. So
0: I still have stories like that. And I think I, I, I started medical school in 2004. And I have I have stories like that. So
1: it's just, crazy. It's like, crazy. it's hard to believe that that happens. I do feel yeah. like it's gotten so much better mm-hmm. um, from that standpoint. But I, I think a lot of the barriers are still there. Um, mm-hmm. I think the one thing that is better is there are there are more women who can serve as as role models. But the problem is the, a lot of the fundamental institutional issues still exist. Um, yes. And um, so we can change, you know, how we interact. We can change the demeanor. We can change the conversation. But until we really approach some of those things and they're exactly the things that you were just talking about. So I think, um, you know, in just thinking about it, I did what all women do. You put your head down, you do your work you try to be the best that you can. And I I still think that's an issue. I think women still have to, in some ways, rise higher. um, And I think that's problematic. But I think that's Mm -hmm. what we did. So it was really um, Biggie Ronette, And the other person I worked closely with was Dr. Kathleen Cho, who's um, at -hmm. University of Michigan. And she and I actually started a lab together. And I think if it hadn't been the two of us working together to start a lab, I think my career trajectory would have been very different because I think having the two of us do it, um, we were able to deal with a lot of obstacles that were put in front of us at the time, but because we worked as a pair and I, I think it's an, I thought it was something that might happen more when I was younger, that, that there might be more sharing, uh, of roles for women and because that really was important to me in the beginning, um.
0: Sharing in terms of, of you all were splitting time, or do you just mean sharing in terms of like combining resources to sort of lift yourselves higher?
1: Yeah, we didn't. And there was no shared responsibility in the sense of like how some people, you know, how it's worked in some of the clinical fields where Mm -hmm. they're 50, 50. I mean, we were both full time. We had all the expectations, Mm -hmm. but just the, the camaraderie, the intimacy of which we were able to deal with each other Mm -hmm. as we dealt with the issues that, you know, we had to deal with as, as two women in the field at that, at that time. And I think that, um, you know, that, you know, so I, a lot of the things that people put together, like women in science and women in medicine, those things are great, but what you really need is things at the granular level, things that matter to people in their day-to-day lives. And so that was really helpful for me just to have somebody who, you know, I was on arm in arm with at the time. You're basically
0: going through it together. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually, as I have, have served in community practice and academic medicine. Now I think when I look at my friends who are female, who not only have family, some of them do, some of them don't. I think a lot of what's wrong with medicine uh, is, and I just talked about this on a show last on my podcast last week was the, this idea of flexibility. I think there's not a lot of appetite for flexibility in medicine, and it's interesting to me that even in a field like pathology, there isn't this an appetite for that. When of all the fields I can think of, we might be the one that has the most potential for flexibility besides maybe something like radiology. Mm-hmm. Our patients aren't sitting in an office waiting for us. You know, Does it really matter if I start signing up my cases at 11 a.m. or 7 a.m.? Mm-hmm. Maybe not if I'm willing to finish the work in a, in a given day, right? But mm-hmm. in the jobs I've had, which were run by men, there was an expectation that my presence was required at a certain time to start doing the work. And I think job sharing is also not something you ever hear about. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it would it would work, especially yeah. with maybe early career physicians, people who have families, keeping them in the field and up to date with current literature and topics while giving them the flexibility to start a family or start a new life in a new city with a new partner or something. But I don't know when that's going to happen. And I think it's going to have to come from within. So it's very interesting to hear you say that you think change is required at a granular level. Perhaps we have to have people who succeed in doing things like that to show the world that it can be done. I don't know the answer.
1: But. Yeah, I completely agree yeah. with you. And I, so, and as we just mentioned, those might be some of the upsides of, yeah. of COVID, right? Because I think that yeah. this idea of working remotely um, yeah. was always seen as, you know, those people are just lazy. They don't want yeah, to come to Yeah, they're work. just at home watching yeah.
0: Netflix. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I,
1: I think they've seen that um, given the right opportunity, although the problem for many women is that. Um, they're less able to be productive at home because they're like right. you teaching children, cooking meals, so, yeah. doing laundry, yeah. Yeah. you know, all yeah, yeah, the yeah. things that come with uh-huh. that. But I think you're right. one of the things that, you know, I was taking a walk yesterday and I was thinking, you know, why don't we have more sort of subspecialization in a way in academic medicine? And I don't mean like GYN pathology versus urological pathology. And I think people have talked about this, about tracks on academic, but I'm yeah, not even yeah. talking about that. It's like, you know, some people are really good at teaching, but, and others don't care, but every sign out involves residents, right? Yeah. Like, why is that? I mean, maybe that should be, you know, given to people who really enjoy that, of sitting down with residents and signing out and, and having that dynamic, whereas other people, that's not really their thing. They like to sign out their cases, but they want to do research and they want to work with fellows on research projects instead of that. And we really haven't done anything to differentiate people at a granular level. I mean, they do it sort of like, oh, if you're more interested in teaching on a track or you're more, but it doesn't really turn into anything that works at that level. And I think if we were able to do that again and allow people to do more what they loved to do um, and differentiated more, and like you said, that would allow more flexibility in the job, that might yeah. help a lot too. But I think we're just so used to, this is how it is. This has been the standard bearer. This is how academic medicine should look like. And we're just stuck in that rut. And I think we yeah. really are gonna have to make some um, fundamental changes in order to really incorporate women at you know, the way they should, which is 50% of you know, every yeah. job level should be held by women.
0: Yes. And uh, I mean, two things. One, my least favorite phrase in the world when I bring up an idea and I am told no is because that's not the way we do it. Just, just drives me bonkers. I don't, that's the nicest word I can say. And the second thing is there's a revolution going on right now in education. I mean, it's, it's irrefutable. They're, they're flipping cl- the classroom, the flipped classroom method, which I think is something that we should expect of people who come to sign out. I think, you know, this idea that you review the material before you come so that you can have a fulsome discussion about the material while you're in person, instead of coming to a lecture hall, putting yourself in a seat and having someone talk at you for 15 minutes. And so what I think we're doing for learners is we're personalizing their experience. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're saying not everyone learns well sitting in a seat and having me talk at them. I'm going to put the lecture online. You can review it, how you review it. And then we're going to have a discussion about it. And there's also these other ways you can access the material. So maybe what you're saying is that we should be doing the same thing for the teachers. You know, (laughs) we should say your strengths are the one-on-one in person. Your strengths are the the bench science and walking people through that. So um, it is kind of insane what we expect faculty members at academic institutions to do. You're supposed to be a good teacher, a good researcher, a good uh, sign out. You know, a person who crafts reports that clinicians can understand, you're supposed to, it's, it's like being a superhero.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, in fact, in reality, if you looked at it, it's never really worked very well because yeah. those people who weren't good teachers, uh, their lectures weren't good or their whatever yeah. wasn't good, but it was okay because their research was really good. Right, but right. who paid the price for that? Right. I mean, the people sitting in the lecture hall or, or so uh, I I think you're right. I think, and I think it's converging to come from both areas. And I I think the world has changed. I mean, I, I, you know, not to say, I think, you know, things were hard back then when we trained, it was a different thing. Things are hard now, but the, the amount of or the sheer volume of information that people have to, to get under their belt, undoubtedly has changed. And and so yes. to me, whatever the driver force is, whether it's, you know, helping women, which I think we have to do, um, also anybody in pathology, but just this idea of information overload and how we're going to deal with it um, in our field mm-hmm. is really important and is going to drive change um, in any event, right? Yes, yes. And hopefully...
0: Um, I think subspecialization is a lovely thing. Having been in community practice, I never felt like I knew anything quite as well as I knew GYM pathology. And uh, I think it's it's going to happen even within our field, which is very interesting. So, yes, um, I agree. well, thank you so much for talking to me today. What a lovely way to start the day. Do you have anything else you'd like to say before we go? Anything I didn't ask?
1: No, I, I just want to end with, I, I still, given all of its faults and its downsides, academic mm-hmm. medicine is, I think, a, a great field to be in. It's, it's something that I think creates satisfaction within and also their satisfaction that you're doing something that's, that's larger than yourself. And so I would do it all over again. And I still hope that we can convince people that it's a, it's a worthwhile and um, engaging field to go into. Yes, definitely.
0: Well, it's definitely the one you and I have both chosen. So. Exactly.
1: Well, and <laughs> thank you for doing all of this. I think it's really um, a great service to everybody out there. So thanks for. Yeah, we're going to recruit all the
0: bright and shining stars into pathology by telling them how wonderful our lives are. <laughs>
1: there so you that's go. The plan. Okay. Thanks for <laughs> stopping
0: right. by. I appreciate it, Laura.
1: Thanks. Bye bye.
0: Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest, Dr. Glenn McCluggage. Dr. McCluggage received his MBBS from Queen's University in Belfast, Northern Ireland, followed by training in pathology at Royal Victoria Hospital. He is now a consultant histopathologist in Belfast Health and Social Care Trust, Belfast, and an honorary professor in gynecologic pathology of Queen's University of Belfast. He serves on the editorial board of several major pathology journals, is widely, and I mean widely, published and was the past president of the International Society of Gynecological Pathologists and contributed to the last several editions of the WHO text. Dr. McCluggage is here as a part of a series where I'm highlighting contributions of notable GYN pathologists and um, interviewing them about how they became interested in the field. So Dr. McCluggage, Glenn, thank you so much for joining me. How are you?
3: I'm great, how are you? strange times we're living through, but we just have to get on with things.
0: Yes, I agree to all of the above. So can you tell us more about yourself aside from the information I've provided, how you came to work where you do specifically did you come from a scientific family, and why did you choose medicine as a career?
3: okay well, yeah, there's no there are no other medics in my family i'm I'm the first one um I guess it was a long time ago, and uh, I think in those days at school, there wasn't really a lot of uh, careers advice. I seem to remember in those days, if you were quite good at school, they, they told you to try for medicine, so I tried for medicine at Queen's University of Belfast. I, I lived just outside Belfast, so I've spent all my life at Queen's University. and now working in the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast.
0: Okay, And how did you come to choose GYN Pathology as a specialty? Was there a certain person or experience that inspired you?
3: Well, I was thinking about this uh, a few days ago. You know, when I started in pathology, it was uh, 1988. Uh, In those days, I guess it was in common with labs everywhere. There was really no subspecialization so when I was a trainee, I worked with a a guy, one of our consultants or attendings called Hoshang Barucha, who reported a lot of the cervical punch biopsies. So really, it started then. He got me to, to help him out. And that's when it kind of started. That's when kind of my love with gynecological pathology began. And things just evolved from there, I guess.
0: Can you explain... To those of us who are not in the UK, how your system is organized? You are—is um, your institution considered academic, and you're listed as a consultant? Does that mean that you primarily review consult or outside
3: material? I think a consult—a consultant—is just a word for a career pathologist. I guess it's the equivalent to an attending in the in in the USA. So. You know, it doesn't mean anything other than you're a permanent member of staff.
0: And is your is your institution considered academic? Is there a divide between academic and private institutions as much in Northern Ireland?
3: Well, the pathology department I work in, I guess there are about 30 consultants. Uh, so it is an academic institution. It's affili- affiliated to Queen's University of Belfast, uh, so yeah, so it's a, really, it's a big pathology department. Uh, Pre-COVID, I guess, we got about sixty to 70,000 biopsies per, per year. So it is considered an academic department and probably, I would say, one of the biggest laboratories in, in the UK.
0: And is your hospital part of a network of hospitals? And if so, is the network more with the United Kingdom? Or do, are you affiliated at all with Hosp- hospitals in the Republic of Ireland? Do your patients only come from Northern Ireland? How does that work? I don't really understand the organization of that. So, so a
3: good question. So Northern Ireland is actually quite a small region of the United Kingdom. It's only about 1.8 million. So I would work in the main pathology laboratory in Northern Ireland, and then there are there's three smaller pathology laboratories, and we all kind of work together. You know, we have kind of relationships with other hospitals, both in the UK and and the Republic of Ireland. I guess the, the trainees or the, you know, the trainees or the residents in Northern Ireland, they would do their exams through the United Kingdom College of Pathologists. So I guess in that way, we're more kind of affiliated to the rest of the UK. But we also have quite a lot of links with, uh, with the Republic of Ireland and the, the trainees and the northern ireland and the republic of ireland have trainee days we work together and so quite a lot of cooperation both within the uk and with the, the hospitals in the republic of ireland
0: and do your patients i mean if if a patient lives closer to belfast but they live in the republic of ireland would they necessarily come there to be treated or is that something that they would for you know insurance or healthcare reasons you know, stay within the Republic. I I don't really understand how much crosstalk there is there.
3: Yeah. So I guess in the United Kingdom, we have a, you know, we have a national health service, and really there's very little private medicine, very little private medicine in the United Kingdom. So there wouldn't be a lot of crossover. I don't think of patients between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. So basically, you know, I work in the Major Cancer Center in Northern Ireland. So the smaller departments, would they would report, you know, hysterectomy specimens for low-grade endometrial cancers. But all the major gynecological surgery would be re- referred to Belfast, you know, while uh, patients are undergoing lymphadenectomies all the advanced stage ovarian cancers, the cervical cancers. So really, it's the referral center in gynecological surgery and the and such gynecological pathology for the whole of Northern Ireland, which covers a population of about 1.8 million, as I mentioned.
0: So moving on, you are widely published in the area of GYN pathology. Um, that's putting it mildly. In terms of topics, it seems you publish about ovarian endometrial And then more esoteric tumors of the GYN tract. Though, if I had to say that I've noticed a theme in your writing, it seems that you excel at um, among many things, but at aggregating rare tumors to find patterns and then taking those and applying practical immuno and molecular markers. So when you were young and coming up, you said you did well in school. And so they told you to try for medicine. Did you know that you wanted to be in academics? Did you know that you liked writing papers so no, much? No, I, you
3: know, I didn't know any of this. So basically, you know, we leave what we would call high school at about 18. And we go straight into medicine. And I believe in the USA, you know, a lot of people who go into medicine, it, it's a, it's at a later age. So You know, there there was no plan Uh, when I was a medical student. We did dollar pathology in third year. I really enjoyed pathology and I enjoyed the lectures. And I guess I decided at that stage uh, that I wanted to do pathology. So the pathway after that is, you know, once we once I qualified as a doctor, we had to do a year what we called a houseman year, working in the wards at that stage, and then we applied for what we wanted to do so I was lucky just to get accepted for pathology and uh, but there was no major there was no kind of major plan about being an academic at that stage and but you know I guess I was just so lucky that I just found something I really enjoyed and that something you know I still enjoy you know I come into work every day. You know, I see something almost different every day, even at at my stage, you know, and there's just so many different things in pathology. There's so much variety and really, you know, it's almost a pleasure to come into work every day and just see what's ready for me to look down the microscope at.
0: So if I may, could I talk to you a little bit about how you group cases together to write about them? It seems that and this is a theme I've noticed interviewing different people. I know um, off the top of my head, I remember Dr. Kerman telling me that he would see a case and then he would immediately be able to recall you know, three other cases he had seen, even if it had been years, and he would know where to go find them. So it seems that you bring together rare tumors. Do you have an actual filing cabinet of slides? Is it on your computer or is it in your head? How do you do that?
3: I get a lot of consult or referral cases. So, you know, I think, you know, although it's kind of hard work, I think I'm in a good position to really, you see all these kind of rare things and, you know, it really is kind of amazing that if you see one thing you you, you haven't seen before and then very suddenly you see a few more cases and you can suddenly even describe describe new entities and one thing I say, I like to keep really good records because, you know, anything, even though it doesn't seem exciting at the time, you know, you know, it, it could be later down the line, you know, and I, I, I like to keep good records and then consequently I'm able to go back and pull out these cases and, you know, people get in touch with me, ask me to collaborate and usually, you know, I have, you know, even rare tumors, I have some some in my files, so, you know, I think it all is about being organised, and uh, you know, just trying to keep good records so you can go back and 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 find these things. But it really never ceases to amaze me that there are new things you would think in pathology that all the entities would be described already, but that, but that's not the case. And you know, and I think there are new entities being described. Described all the time.
0: So, is it an actual filing cabinet full of slides?
3: The record keeping used to be like that. I think I'm, you know, I'm a bit more organized now. So, obviously, it's all electronic, you know, when I get a consult case or an interesting case, I would, you know, file a letter, you know, on my computer and in different folders and then can just immediately look back. When I get referral cases, I almost kind of insist on people sending the blocks so that, you know, I can do whatever stains I want to do. I can prepare extra sections to keep. So, you know, again, I think, you know, I, I try to keep stuff for my referral my referral cases—it really saves time in the long run. If you ever want to put together a series of things, you know, you you don't have to go back to the consulting pathologist. You just kind of keep unstained slides, etc. So, yeah, I have a room full of slides, and but now most of the most of the records I just keep on I keep on my computer scan them in etc so
0: great you have authored or co-authored various Royal College of pathologist data sets in the United Kingdom and you have chaired the iccr panels developing international guidelines for reporting GUI and carcinomas can you talk about that work I assume it involves quite a bit of opinion and data sharing but Can you walk me through what that's like?
3: So I have to say it's very, very enjoyable. You know, uh, what we do in the ICCR actually, so for example, previously I've done the cervical data set, the endometrial data set and the ovarian data set, and now we're doing the vulval data set. So Really, I mean, the ICCR is really based in in Sydney, Australia. But although it is an international group, and so what we do, and we're, for example, when we're doing the vulva data set, you know, I they asked me to put together a panel of about ten pathologists, experts in the field, one clinician, and we really, the way we start is we look at all the kind of established data sets, for example, the CAP the RC path and pull out all the core and non-core items and then we go through a process of really discussing these you know, should these really be core or recommended elements and you know, there are various parameters that are needed to, to fulfill that definition and, and that's really the way it works uh, you know, it really is a collaborative effort between about 10 of us a lot of hard work but really enjoyable, you know, I've been doing the Volvo data set and again, you know, just you know, you learn so much when you're doing this. We always try to bring in some, some young up and coming pathologists. So it's really fun. A lot of hard work. Teleconferences late at night often because, you know, a lot of the participants are all over the world, you know, Australia, Hong Kong, et cetera. So really enjoyable and, but, you know, really worthwhile in the end, I think.
0: And the teleconferencing, maybe you were good at that before the rest of us had to figure it out for COVID. So Um, As someone who writes many manuscripts, I assume you have a really well-honed process for writing papers, but you also serve on many editorial boards for journals. Can you talk about your process for reviewing articles and what you've learned about criticism and any pointers you have for those of us getting started?
3: So, I mean, one thing I would always advise people when they're writing papers, uh, and it, it seems a very basic thing, but really Get the kind of English right, get the punctuation right, because if you're reviewing a manuscript, if it's badly written, you know, no matter how good the content is, you're almost kind of put off, put off at, at the outset. I would say it really is important to take the time to get the manuscript right, as right as you can at the time. I also think, you know, when you're, I think a lot of people, a lot of manuscripts you know manuscripts really should be quite short and succinct so really have a you know have a good shor- a short succinct introduction and really you know most papers should be fer- should be fairly short you know they shouldn't be necessarily reviewing reviewing all the literature Uh, you know, outside the really specific literature. But really, my main thing is, you know, make sure the paper is well written because you would be surprised. It really does make a difference to a reviewer. You know, if the manuscript is all over the place, you know, the punctuation, the grammar is very bad. You know, it makes it really hard to review. And I think that, you know... You, that can actually result in a in a per in a per review even even if the content of the paper of the paper is quite good.
0: Those are good points. I agree. It it really does take you out of the experience of reading a paper when there are grammatical errors, even if you try not to let that happen. So speaking of articles, I'm a big fan of an article you wrote on benign endometrial pathology. I share it with my trainees. It's also present online in a lecture form. It looks like a PowerPoint that you gave, and I've linked to that in the show notes for those who are interested. I find that practical pointers from folks like you who've signed these cases out over and over again go a long way. And You make one point I'd like to talk about, though, regarding adequacy in postmenopausal patients, which is something I'm very interested in. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how you approach adequacy in this patient population. I know there are some rules about adequacy, you know, in terms of 10 strips of 10 cells. But what if you're, say you have a, a specimen that's pretty scant, but you would consider it adequate, but say you're provided a history of endometrial thickening, do you ever use the correlate with clinical features comment do you think that's kind of a cop-out how do you come down on that
3: yeah I mean th- th- this is a di- this is a difficult field I-, I guess the point we were trying to make we published a few papers in this a few years back and one thing was you know I was quite my experience was in our laboratory a lot of people were calling a lot of biopsies inadequate when there was there was some tissue there so uh, of course, the biopsy must always be correlated with, with the clinical picture and the hysteros- hysteroscopic picture by, by the clinician, but I guess the point I was, I was trying to make is, you know, we shouldn't be just calling the ter- using the term inadequate willy, willy-nilly, you know, if there is some tissue there. Um, there have been a few kind of subsequent papers. Uh, you know, showing that, I mean, you mentioned the 10 strips. I I don't really think it's useful to be counting the kind of number of strips, etc. But, you know, just I tend not to call these biopsies inadequate if if there is some tissue there. You know, if there's just very little endometrial tissue, then I would call it inadequate. And obviously, if there's no tissue. But I think the important thing is not to be calling all these biopsies inadequate and people will then kind of make up their own kind of judgment when it becomes inadequate or or adequate. so But it is a difficult area.
0: So to wrap up, to talk about 2020, it's been quite a year so far. It's changed work and life for pretty much everybody, I think, on the planet. Um, How has 2020 been for you, so far, what has changed?
3: Yeah, it's been a bit of a roller coaster year. You know, I was just thinking about it this my last time on a plane was uh was at the USCAP meeting in the, in Los Angeles way back at the the beginning of March and you know I'm kind of you know I I go to a lot of meetings. I speak at a lot of meetings, so you know, usually I'm flying off somewhere, and uh, so you know, I've have missed that a lot. You know, I miss the interaction at the meetings with other people. You know, I miss kind of going out in the evenings with my with my colleagues. Uh, but in a way, you know, things are slightly less pressurized at work. You know, I used to always be heading off the meetings and trying to get things cleared up by fo- before I headed off, and then you were always under pressure when when you were back. So. You know, in many ways it has been a bit more relaxing at work over over the, the past six months or so, which is which which is no bad thing. Uh but I, I do have to say I'm looking forward to get back into the back to the face to face meetings. You know, the virtual meetings are are fine, but you know, obviously we miss all the interaction. We miss meeting up with our friends and uh you know, hopefully, you know, early next year or mid next year we can get back to some some type of type of type of normality.
0: Yeah, fingers crossed on that one. Just one one final question. I uh was reading about you online as much as I could just to prepare for our interview and I did see on one thing on one biography it says that you you're interested in sports. So I assume that's something you do to relax or have fun. I don't know if it's watching or playing sports. Also, an interesting thing is I tried searching you on YouTube to see if anyone else had ever interviewed you. And the answer is no. But there is a famous Australian football player with your last name, and he is very popular on YouTube. So I got to learn about Australian rules football. So thank you for Mm -hmm. that. But um, what do you (laughs) what do you do when you're uh, relaxing or having fun and not working?
3: Yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm a big sports fan. Uh, so when I, I'm too old to play now, but when I was younger, I played soccer. I played played rugby. So I'd be a big fan of both those sports. Uh, I follow a team called Manchester City in the English League. I follow my local soccer team. I'm actually in a couple of years, I'll be president of, of our my local rugby club. So, you know, I played rugby for years and these are, you know, I've met a lot of kind of, you know, you meet a lot of friends in pathology, but you know, I also, you know, I have a lot of lifelong friends from kind of, from playing sports and, you know, going to watch sports so I still go down on a Saturday morning during the rugby season to watch the matches, so uh Yeah, I'm a big sports fan. Really, many different sports, but mainly, but mainly, soccer and rugby. It's interesting the surname McLuggage's. All the McLuggage's are from the same place, which is just outside Belfast, and. In Northern Ireland, it's obviously a very unusual name, but I I, I have heard of that uh, Australian football guy, and I'm pretty sure you could trace him back to to just outside Belfast in Northern Ireland. I'm pretty sure that's the case.
0: Oh, that's so interesting! It was uh, I I clicked on it. I watched him. He apparently was confined to his home during quarantine, and I was trying to listen to him answer questions, and I could not understand approximately half of what he was saying. I think there was a lot of sports slang in there, which I don't understand. I think Australian football is somewhat like rugby. It's related, but it's definitely not like American football. So, um, so do you still, you still play rugby or do you just watch it at this point?
3: Yeah, no, I am too, I'm too old, too old to play. No, I, so no, I stopped many, many years ago and, uh, but still, still go to watch every Saturday, have a few beers after and kind of meet up with friends. So, yeah, you know, I like to work hard during the week, but really, then yeah, like to get out and about at the weekend and and enjoy myself. And things are all good, but again, that's another down down side of the COVID thing. You know, we there's a four week lockdown here in in Northern Ireland, so yeah, things are definitely different. And we, you know, I just hope things get back to normal. You know early next year sometime I do
0: too I hope you get to go back to watching rugby on the weekend so thank you for taking time out of your day I know we had some trouble initially connecting but this was a really good interview I appreciate you doing this okay great
3: okay great to speak to you Natalie and we'll maybe meet up next year okay
0: definitely okay thanks Glenn have a good day
3: Bye. bye 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 bye
0: Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest, Dr. Fabiola Medeiros. Dr. Medeiros went to medical school at Faculdade Evangelica de Medicina do Paraná in Curitiba, Paraná, Brazil. She completed her AP residency and GYN perinatal pathology fellowship at Brigham and Women's Hospital, followed by fellowships at Mayo Clinic in surgical and molecular pathology, where she then stayed on as faculty before making the move to California, where she completed a cytopathology fellowship at USC before staying on as faculty. Now, she is an associate professor of pathology and laboratory medicine and the director of gynecology, placental, and perinatal pathology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. In an effort to highlight innovative and exciting opportunities within the field of GI pathology, I have asked Fabiola here today to talk about why she chose this specialty and what's happening now. So, Fabiola, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today?
2: I'm great, Natalie. Uh, first of all, great job in your Portuguese. And hey, hey. second, <laughs> uh, thank you very much for the invitation. I-, I feel very honored to be have been invited to participate in this podcast.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's great to have you. And I think it's a credit to your uh, skill and training that I had to take deep breaths during your introduction. You've done a lot of things. You're a very accomplished person. (laughs) I can tell when I'm out of breath from an intro. So um, can you tell me more about yourself, aside from that information I provided above, how you came to be working where you are? And you know, how did you choose medicine as a field? Was your family uh, in medicine or scientific or how did that happen?
2: Well, I think my family is in the in many different areas. My mom is a psychologist. My dad is a lawyer, but I have an uncle that is a vascular surgeon back in Brazil, and he did influence me a lot. Mm -hmm. But in school, I was always fascinated by biology. And early, actually in high school, I considered going into marine biology because I love the ocean and and Mm -hmm. the uh, marine animals. But then later on, I realized that I also liked human biology and that maybe... um, medicine would be a better career option for me. So I did apply for medical school in Brazil and I graduated. Uh, And honestly, from the beginning of medical school, I, I could already see that pathology would be my choice. To be honest i didn 't even know pathology existed as a sub, as a specialty as a medical specialty before starting medical school, mm-hmm. uh, but in the first week, I already fell in love with the microscope and looking at cells and uh, then I became a teaching assistant in both histology and pathology, and I was actually in that position for many years because medical school in Brazil is six years. Uh, So pretty much from year two to year six, I was a teaching assistant in histology because I loved it so much. And uh, I had a very deep, uh, very comprehensive histology course because we actually had to make drawings of every single tissue in the body with like blue and pink, pink pink pencils. Uh, So it was a very intense type of subject in medical school. And I'm glad it was that way, because I I really learned a lot uh, about that is amazing.
0: Do you still have any of the drawings? I have them.
2: I have mine and I have my best friends because my best friend I medical school, she's like an artist. So her drawings were so amazingly beautiful. Mine were so, so. But basically, Natalie, it was unbelievable how much histology I had. The first year of medical school, I had four hours a week of histology. Wow. Half of that was under each, each student with their own microscope and for example, we were looking at liver by the end of the class, we had to do a drawing. We had this this paper sheet with a circle. So we had to draw the cells that we saw and we had to name them. And that was actually graded in the end of the in the end of each, I think, trimester. So the teaching assistants would look at the drawings and would correct and would give it a grade. So it was actually very serious. And I, I have, as I said, I have my folder, which has about a hundred pages, and my friends folder as well up to this day 25 years later
0: oh but if I were you those would be on the wall of my office that is so incredible I really think I've been teaching histology virtually and it's just not the same as looking through the microscope but I think people and they've proven this right you learn so much better when you have to recreate something I think you learn better when you take notes with your hand and a pencil than you do on um, typing on a computer. So I can't imagine that drawing cells out on paper didn't put that into a really deep part of your brain. I bet you're an incredible histology person. That's uh, I think for a lot
2: of medical students, it was a struggle, but for me, yeah. I, I felt like I, I did have some, some um, like it was easier for me to recognize uh, things yeah. on the microscope and translate them into paper. So for me, it was like, fun and a blast. But a lot of students actually struggled. And our professor, she was so strict. She was one of those older ladies with a very traditional background. So it was by no means an easy uh, subject in medical school. And I believe that a lot of South America and at least part of Europe has that very traditional type of Mm-hmm. basic cycle of medical school as well. I did mm-hmm. teach histology as a subject in at the Mayo Medical School mm-hmm. when I joined Mayo as faculty. And uh, yes, everything at that time, which was, I think, 2007, was already on a laptop, so they they basically never looked at a microscope, the medical students, and I think yeah. in general that's true for most American medical schools. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, it's it's the exception. You're right; it's not the rule anymore. So, what did your friend, who was a better artist than you, go into? What does that person do now?
2: Well, so uh, she she started doing psychiatry, uh, but oh. then she never really finished her residency, and oh. then she later did homeopathy, and then she oh. did like art therapy. So she was always very alternative. Her name is Giovanna. I'm going to tell her name here because I may ask her to see this podcast later. She always liked the more alternative sides of medicine. Uh, she never went yeah. into traditional like Western medicine. uh, Well, that's lovely
0: though. So how did you end up choosing GYN pathology? Or I guess, you know, you, you chose GYN pathology, you also chose molecular and cytopathology. So you can answer these questions all together if you like, but you did your, you know, GYN up where you did your residency. So was there a certain person or experience that inspired you to to pick that fellowship? Yes.
2: So first of all, GYN is my mainstream, right? That's Mm -hmm. like my passion my greatest passion and that passion started actually back in medical school because this histology professor she was a gynecologist so as Mm -hmm. you can imagine we had some special attention in the GYN organ system and I, I thought the ovary with with the eggs at various stages of development. I, I've, I always thought that ovary was such an amazing organ to look at under the microscope. And then I also, also liked a lot gynecology and obstetrics in medical school, but I didn't see myself as an OBGYN doctor. So mm-hmm. I already started residency, not knowing that I could do a, a subspecialty fellowship in GYN, but already with that with an interested in the clinical side of OBGYN. And then when I started my residency at the Brigham, of course the women's and perinatal subdivision it was very strong, is very strong. And our sign out for pathology in general was was general. So people signed out GI and and let's say G U all at the same time at the time when I did my residency. But women's and perinatal was completely separate because uh, women's. It was the women's hospital and the Brigham Hospital, and then they came together. Mm-hmm. the The division of women's and perinatal was kept separate and uh, so I love my rotations and I love the GYN tumors because I think there's such great variety and I love cervical pathology with HPV and then I was like my first end of my first early second year I was like I really like GYN pathology I think I would love to do a fellowship and and choose that as my main subspecialty and then I, I remember this as if it was today I knocked on Dr. Crumb's door so at the time he was director of the division and director of the fellowship as well. I knocked on his daughter. I was a second year resident. I said, Dr. Crum, I'm very interested in the Women's and Perinatal Pathology Fellowship. And I don't know if you know Dr. Cromwell, he's a very practical person. So he okay. looked at me and said, the position is yours. And then I was like, really? Yay, yeah, that's so, so great. great. And yeah. I, was, I was so happy. This was back in the day, of course, in, in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, when I think fellowship selection systems weren't so, well, so systematic. Yeah. It was easier to get into fellowships, I think, at that time. And it was less bureaucratic. Nowadays, I I don't see that happening, but basically that's what happened to me. And then I started my Joanne Path Fellowship after AP residency and I must say, I I think if I had to choose the best year of my life, that would have been the best year of my life because that division is amazing. All the faculty, uh, I'm not even going to start to say names because I don't want to forget everyone, but every single faculty at the Women's and Perinatal uh, Pathology Division at the Brigham is amazing. And I made a best friend, which is Julia Alvin. We were co-fellows. And we we talked so much. Our desks were side by side. And at some mm-hmm. point, like, okay, we have to work. Let's stop talking. <laughs> uh, we're best friends up to this day. So that was an amazing year. So that's how I chose UN Pathology. And I always knew that was going to be my mainstream. But then I went to the Mayo Clinic afterwards, more for personal reasons, because I was married at the time, and and basically, I had to go uh, for family reasons to Mayo, and that's when I did the Search Path Fellowship, and then I thought, well, it would be really good to do molecular, so I'm more independent in my research with gynecologic tumors, so I did molecular there, and uh, cytopathology is a longer story, actually, um, what happened was that when I was at the Brigham, I already wanted to do cytopathology because I remember back in Brazil when I was a medical student rotating in the Department of Pathology in my university hospital, I always had the sense that surgical pathologists that knew cytopathology were more round well rounded they were better diagnosticians, and so I always had an interest for cytopathology from that regard, and of course, the Brigham has also a very strong cytopathology division under uh Dr. Sebus, But Mm -hmm. because of my family situation, I couldn't stay at the Brigham that year. And when I arrived at Mayo, they did not have yet a cytopathology fellowship. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have really an option to do a cytopathology fellowship in these two institutions. But then time passed by, I I had already done three fellowships, and uh, I was hired by Mayo, stayed on faculty at Mayo. And my experience was that I struggled so much with cytopathology as faculty at Mayo, because even though cytopathology was seen primarily by cytopathologists on the IOC room, in the frozen section room, sometimes we received roles, right? Adequacy assessment for cytology. And I really Oh, struggled. wow. You do I that mean, in
0: the frozen room? Yeah, Mayo? we
2: did that in one of the oh, hostels. Wow. And again, this is all many years ago, so I don't know how right. it is now, right. but I struggled yeah. so much. I'm like, mm-hmm. is this normal liver? Is this adrenal? Is this a tumor? I I felt (laughs) so stressed. And I'm like, I don't know much cytopathology. And we had another area at Mayo that was called MC3. Don't ask me why it was called MC3. But basically, (laughs) were all the cases that patients that were going to be treated at Mayo brought their pathology, previous pathology, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it was a huge volume. And a lot of cases had cytology. And I didn't feel comfortable signing those cases. And also in the GYN service, it was mostly a consult-based service because Mayo has a big extramural consultation practice. So I would get GYN cases that had cytology parts and then i'm like i need a cytopathologist to look at this i never felt comfortable and right. i always felt like there was a big gap in my training not having done cytopathology so when i decided to resign my position at mayo from my position at mayo and go and live in europe and we can discuss that a little later yeah. um, i was like well i'm going to leave for some period of time in Europe. But when I come back, instead of looking for a job, I think I'm going to do a cytopathology fellowship. So there I was, I applied. But it was so unusual, right? I I mean, I had three fellowships already. I had been an attending at Mayo for three years and a half. And then comes this person applying for a cytopathology fellowship. So as you can imagine, that was considered very unusual by the programs, by the psychology <laughs> programs I applied to. And even some said, like some proud directors, said are you interested in a faculty position we don't yeah. have a, We are not going to give you the fellowship but a faculty position maybe and I said no I really want to do the fellowship and I I always love California and I always love LA and Southern California in general so I thought well I'm gonna go for the location <laughs> I know there are such great fellowships out there but I want to live in Southern California so I applied to all programs in California and to my surprise, most of them had offered positions to their internal candidates already. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I was always an internal candidate before. So everything mm-hmm. had been so easy for me, right, mm-hmm. being accepted in my fellowships. And then all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my gosh, there are no almost no positions in California anymore. But then... I was very lucky that I was accepted at uh, University of Southern California to do my cytopathology fellowship. Uh, and that was an amazing fellowship. We had our own FNA clinic. I learned a lot. I also made another best friend, Manju Aaron, who is still at USC at this time. So it, it was a great year. And then USC ended up hiring me uh, to be on faculty. And so that's how I did all four fellowships, basically.
0: Yeah, that's a great story. I. I always tell, I think we were, we were talking about this before we started, but I tell trainees, you know, if you're thinking about going into private practice, even as you stated, a very strong case also in academics, but I, I second what you say about the best surgical pathologists I knew were also excellent cytopathologists. They were the people who could make a touch prep in the frozen room and interpret that alongside a frozen section just seamlessly. and That didn't scare them. And then also in private practice and community practice, cytopathology is something everyone does, even if you don't have training in it. So you're either going to do it and be extremely uncomfortable, or you're going to do it and feel slightly more comfortable. So did you always know that you wanted to do academic medicine? And your research, when I look over your CV, it seems to kind of cover GYN tumors, but focus on molecular findings. Is that what you envisioned yourself doing when you said you were going to do that molecular fellowship and, and the subsequent ones. Yeah.
2: Yes. Well, I, I think that life sometimes takes you where you have to be. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I, when I was a medical student in Brazil, my, the Pathology Department of the University Hospital had a very strong academic program for medical students, so you were supposed even to apply to small grants and participate in a number of research projects. I had great mentors uh, during that time, so pretty much from the third to the sixth year of medical school, I did a lot of projects at presenting meetings I I, I I did posters, platform presentations. Published some papers in, in more like local journals. So it was it was a very excellent experience. I feel like I was at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Because it's not a lot of places in Brazil that actually have, you know, leadership that invest in academics, academic development of medical students. And if mm-hmm. it wasn't for that, I don't think I would have been accepted in, in the residency that I was accepted because the Brigham was and still is one of the top residency programs in the country. So having that in my CVET that having that deep interest for pathology for many years already in medical school and having all the publications and all the presentations in meetings, I think played a big role in me being able to get in such a outstanding residency. And then, of course, when I started at the Brigham, you brief academia. So you are offered projects right away. You participate. They are so exciting. They're always great projects with great mentors. And then when I arrived at Mayo, Mayo is also amazing because there's so many cases and great resources. So I continue all the academic work. But then life... Life changes and my personal life changed. So I decided to leave and in, in, in be in Europe for a year and a half. And that's when I think my academic production really like it didn't decrease. It became like, no, right? Because I basically did not work for a year and a half. So I did nothing for an and a half. And then uh, when I came to the cytology fellowship and when I became faculty at USC, I did some small projects, but I must confess that even though USC is very academic in some of their departments and, and there are great researchers, I didn't feel like... I don't know, I I, I went through a phase in which I wanted to enjoy my life in LA. I thought this was an amazing place. There wasn't a lot of peer pressure or leadership pressure for you to be academic and publish. I I think resources were limited and difficult to get. Therefore, Mm -hmm. I I feel like really, I didn't produce much academically. I I did a lot of teaching internally for residents, but I, I only had a few small projects. So when I joined CEDARS, I was very well, actually, before that. So, okay, coming back to the issue of academia. So I was very academic until I left Mayo for many years from mid-medical school until I left Mayo as a faculty and then I, I had like a five-year gap where I didn't do much and because of this situation actually I got a proposal to go to a private practice and I was like mm. oh I would like to try that I'm not that much into academia anymore this is a great opportunity I always saw myself as a good general surgical pathologist so let me give it a try right so six months in I'm like this is not for me <laughs> so
1: really oh yeah, yeah
2: i couldn't yeah. i couldn't handle it i i made great friends again all the pack, the name of the place is apmg i made great friends it was a great environment but just the type of work that you had to do was not something i looked forward to to do every day to get a pile of cases of different areas and oftentimes the cases are not so interesting i crave doing my subspecialty crave being in an academic environment with lots of meetings and discussion and, and and residents and medical students, so I, I felt I felt a fish out of water in private mm-hmm. practice. I was like, I I'm an academic pathologist. I, I cannot stay. I, I can't. I, I really don't want to stay. And that's when um, I I I was let know by one of my previous uh, residents at Mayo that there was a position open at Cedars for director of gynecologic pathology and I was like well I'll apply I don't know if they will be interested because after all I haven't been doing much academics lately and I'm sure they want someone that has a strong academic profile and after many ups and downs it was a long process um I was offered the position and uh, I, I feel honestly very lucky and blessed because it's a great place. And, uh, it, it, you know, I, I think that my career in general always was more than I ever thought it was possible so I feel extremely blessed and I'm back in academia very happy many research projects going on doing lots of talks working very late working weekends but very happy
0: (laughs) yeah back to the academic grind right yeah weekends and nights so we're gonna go back in time a little bit here and talk about you were first author on a poster which was presented I think it was a poster and not a platform but correct me if I'm wrong and it was yeah. No poster. And it was called a proposed protocol for sectioning and extensively examining the fimbriated end of the fallopian tube or CFIM implications for detecting tubal epithelial abnormalities in women with and without BRCA mutations. So that was in 2006 at USECAP and you were awarded the Stoll orvinson Award. So this concept pretty much changed how GYN specimens were handled. I'm just wondering if you can take me back to what it was like to work on that project? What do you remember about going to USCAP re- that year? And how do you look back? Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's hear it! Oh, this is a great story. Yeah.
2: Well, I remember that when I was a resident, it was about 2001, 2002, when when there were very few papers that came out as fallopian tube maybe potentially being the origin of some ovarian cancers, but there wasn't much literature out there. And at the Brigham, we had to present a conference called Gross Micro, which was mm-hmm. basically a conference of pathogenesis of disease. So mm-hmm. one of my topics I remember in second year of residency was the origin of ovarian cancer. So I remember that I talked about, it was, it's an, a half an hour talk. All the department goes like very high stakes. And I presented all the evidence that was out there, and Falopinch was like the last item because it wasn't so important at the time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right, 2001, 2002. And then I remember as a fellow or late resident or early fellow that I was signing out with Dr. Crum. I was a resident because I grossed the case. It was a prophylactic salpingo and I did not submit the entire fallopian tube. And then Uh-oh. Dr. Crum, but even know, yeah. this whole thing <laughs> didn't exist yet. You know, I know, nobody I Nobody had heard of this, was like 2002. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then Dr. Crum looked at me and said, go back and submit the entire fallopian tube. And I said, why? And he said, because I'm thinking some of these cancers, there's some literature coming out, they may come from the fallopian tube. So I went back and I submitted the entire case. It was benign, fine. Mm-hmm. Then I started the fellowship and these things start really building up, right? The prophylactic bingophorectomies. Mm-hmm. And, and then Dr. Crumb decided that we should submit the entire fallopian tubes for every one of those cases. And we start finding stick lesions in those mm-hmm. cases. And then he is, of course, a super smart, super super creative person. And he was like, I think we should create a protocol, you know, in which we can see the fimbria better because we started noticing when I was a fellow that most of them were in the fimbriated end. So me and Julia Elvin, that were the fellows, we basically worked directly with him to come up with this protocol to take the pictures for the paper, and then he made me be the first author in the paper, which became a very famous, like very well. You are very famous,
0: <laughs> yes.
2: But it's all his idea, and I tell him that. they said I was only a fellow, Doctor Crom. It's your idea. is like no, you take all the credit because that's how he is, right? He never yeah. takes the credit; he always that's gives credit. Very for everyone. gracious, but still. To
0: be the first author on that's incredible. You no, know, you know? I did write think, the paper yeah. under his guidance and we right, did take right. the pictures.
2: So, mm-hmm. but before the paper, we submitted an abstract to USCAP as a poster because he thought that we should uh, we should apply for the Stawarson Award so I went to USCAP that year it was in Atlanta I believe and mm. you, know, you know a lot of people at USCAP I presented my poster, a lot of the big names in joan pathology stopped by I remember them stopping by the, the poster and, and being interested and so on and so forth but then in, I, I wasn't really planning on necessarily attend the award ceremony in the afternoon right? I, I had no expectations that this could be awarded so one of my Brazilian friends, Paula, she was a resident at the Brigham at the time, now she's back in Brazil, she texted me, I remember, she texted me and said, congratulations, like, in Portuguese, Parabéns. And I'm like, why? Oh, you won the Star Award. And I said, really? <laughs> well, that's so cool. <laughs> so that's when I went back to my room, and I changed, you know, and then I was on time, and then they take pictures, and I was very happy, of course. And then we, we soon afterwards, we published the paper because this is something that, of course, you have to publish soon. So I remember very well everything. And, you know, again, you're just the right
0: person at the right time, in the right
2: place with the right mentors.
0: So among your roles in academic medicine, you talked about this earlier, that even when you feel like you weren't publishing a lot, you were teaching and lecturing quite a bit. And you've been awarded by your students with teaching awards. Can you tell me how you approach teaching? How do you connect with your students? And if you want to touch a little bit on how that's changed since the pandemic?
2: I think that for me, and that's what I learned also, is that this professor of histology that I told you about taught me Mm -hmm. that early on, is that you're a good teacher when you really care if people that are your students are learning, right? So the way I, I view my teaching is who is the audience? How do I make sure they actually learn the subject? How do I take it to their level? Uh, so mm-hmm. I always give the basics. I don't, I never assume people know. Depending on their level, their level of training, and I think teaching with passion, right? Because when you love what you do, and uh, you you pass that on when when you when you teach. And yeah, I was very fortunate that I taught a lot. Of the residents at the USC, I got a award there, and then as a, when I joined Cedars, I got a teaching award here as well and I like I like doing uh, for pathology residents in particular I like doing a mix of PowerPoint slides and slides. Like in mm-hmm. virtual microscopy, well, not virtual microscopy, but it used to be real microscopy, right? Because I like giving some theoretical background and then showing the slides because I feel like everyone learns more looking at the slide than looking at pictures of slides,
3: mm-hmm. right?
2: So I tend to incorporate that. And I think with the pandemic, uh, all our teaching went virtual, and I think there is a greater demand uh, for teaching virtually outside of your primary institution right so mm-hmm. i i got involved with pathcast which is a great platform uh i'm working with carlos from the brigham to build uh the schedule for gyn pathology and we have all great speakers and then i've been invited to give uh like uh, virtual microscope microscopic sessions for the philippines for india for like Spain, so Brazil. So before you had to travel yeah. to get yeah, all these international yeah. talks, no one would invite you to say, can you give us virtual microscopy? Nobody would invite you. But mm-hmm. now... People from all over the world are inviting you. are getting to meet them, to talk to them and teach residents in other countries. I think this is amazing. So I think any crisis have its positive and negative aspects. And I think this pandemic actually will change a lot, a lot the way we teach, a lot the way we practice Mm -hmm. and and a lot of that to the good side, right? Open new opportunities and new avenues, uh, making the world even more global than it already is.
0: Yeah, I agree. I still can't believe it's been almost a year since this virus came. But like you said, we're trying to make you know lemonade out of lemons. And I think there are some silver lining things. And I hope in the future, the other thing I hope is that conferences have a virtual option because I know when my children were very young, it was hard for me to get away for that long. Or when I was in private practice and I couldn't get a whole week off, maybe I could still attend you know virtual platform presentations or at least- Expensive. Yeah,
2: uh, if it you is, get yeah. some countries, yeah. the currency of some countries is is, great, is greatly devalued against dollar. Yeah. I can tell yeah. you the Brazilian currency right now is greatly devalu- uh, devalued. It's very expensive to travel mm-hmm. uh, and to pay for the tuition of courses and to pay for travel expenses. So that, that really brings, it becomes so much more democratic, right? It doesn't matter where mm-hmm. you live, how much money you mm-hmm. have, you can take advantage of these educational opportunities. That's one yeah. thing I love about PATH Cast. I hats, I mean, mm-hmm. thumbs up to Emilio and Refaud because I think that's a great initiative that they developed prior to COVID um, right. pandemic. And 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 it's so it's for free. It's available to everyone, and they mm-hmm. put so much time into it. It's really an incredible. Uh, it's an incredible um, enterprise. They started. Yeah, and-
0: Yeah, I think putting things on YouTube, I, um, it's just, it's really great. And, and, you know, even when I was a fellow, that kind of stuff really didn't exist. So it really makes me happy that we're reaching out to the world and even folks who may be interested in pathology and showing them how awesome we are without people around who are making folks, um, sketch out their histology slides like your teacher and mentor (laughs) did, which is something I kind of wish we'd bring back, but that's for another day. Um, So you are at uh, Cedars-Sinai. You're the director of gynecology, placental and perinatal pathology. For those listening who are thinking about a career in pathology or maybe specializing in GYN pathology, how do you spend your days practicing pathology and what parts do you find most rewarding?
2: Well, I I think that the the clinical part is uh, you are going to see a lot of GYN biopsies, so here we have a separate GYN biopsy service uh, from the Bigs service, and placenta and perinatal is is incorporated into that. It's it's a it's. It's a wonderful area from a sense that you get a wide range of diseases, right? Organs Mm -hmm. and diseases, and uh, very interesting cases in general. Uh, I do think, though, that OBGYN pathology is a subspecialty that is more well-suited for academic practice. And Mm -hmm. the reason for that is uh, because most OBGYN specimens are dealt by general surgical pathologists with a certain... Uh, co- level of comfort. Uh, they they usually handle well, the specimens. They When I was in private practice, they showed me the most difficult cases, but overall, most people are able to handle an endometrial carcinoma, cervical dysplasia, right? The bread and butter of OBGYN. Uh, so it's a subspecialty that I recommend primarily for people that um, would be more interested in staying in academic practice. Of course, if you if you if you want to go to a large private practice with, in a hospital that has you an oncologist or a, a large gynecologic surgery service, you may be helpful, but it's probably not gonna be the, going to be the majority of your workload, um, right, right? Or you're not going to be as needed, um, basically. Um,
0: it, yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about it. I kind of think about it the other way that um, if you want to practice if you do GY and pathology and you want to go into general practice it's good, but you need to also stay good at everything else, right? Because you're you're not, not going to be able to say no. I don't want to sign out that thyroid. You need yes. to keep that colon cancer because you're going to be doing all of it. And breast uh, follows it's everyone a everywhere. But type
2: of specimen yeah. anywhere, yeah. but it's not as yeah. specialized as some other areas of pathology, right? Like right, or derm, yeah, or even exactly. cytopathology. I think
0: right. Although I think, and you know, uh, you were in private practice relatively recently, but I think that the surgeons are starting to expect subspecialization from pathologists, which is going to be a really interesting transition because I think as the academic centers have been subspecialized now for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, probably that wave that I think when the surgeons train in a place and they know, you know, Dr. X is a specialist in, you know, biliary Displ- displeasure or whatever they operate on, some esoteric thing, and then they get into community practice and there's no one who specializes in that, they're the ones who are going to demand it. You know, It's going to be like crowdsourcing for sp- subspecialization. So it'll be interesting in 15 years to see if it's changed. You know, It will this, be interesting. Yeah. It's
2: hard on staffing, right? I think even yeah. in academic centers, for you to completely subspecialize, you need a higher level of uh, staffing, like more staff members than if mm-hmm. you're Semi subspecialized, or if you're general, right. so I think that is a limitation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm also interested to see how this is going to evolve over time because medicine is subspecializing more and more, even in private yes. practice. And mm-hmm. academic medicine has subspecializing pathology, but it's very far from yet from subspecialized uh, pathology in academic. I uh, mean, sorry, in yeah. private practice. So we'll see yeah. how that pans out.
0: It will, it will. In the in the consolidation, the groups are getting bigger and bigger. So maybe it'll be easier to subspecialize, yeah. but we certainly can't predict the future, but it is a very interesting point you made. So finally, I, I noticed on your CV that in the sort of in the middle of your training, and you've touched on this, that you were living in, it seemed like Italy, you said Europe. And it it just from looking at your training and where you've been in the country, you've lived in different parts of the world, different parts of the States. Obviously, you're from Brazil. Can you just talk a little bit about what it's like for you when you go to a new place? And now that you live in Los Angeles, what do you like most about living there? I,
2: I've always been someone that is curious about the world and I think traveling and traveling internationally was always on the top of my list since I was a child. And my mm-hmm. parents are not particularly traveling type of people. They're very regional, uh, very simple people. And my mom tells me the story when I was about 10 years old, friends of the family traveled to Europe. And when they came back, I started crying. I was, a—I mean, a girl. And my mom's like, why are you crying? Because I think I'll never be able to travel to these places. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like intrinsic in me since I was a kid to explore the world and to see other places. And because my family was not well-traveled at all, mm-hmm. I, I felt that was so far from my reality. But then I, I my first travel move was to do clerkships in the United States. I did the, pathology clerkship at Mayo. That's my first move outside of Brazil. And then I also got a rotation in Montreal, McGill University at the time. And that's how I ended up being here for residency. That wasn't the initial plan, but it happened. So I think I never... I never lost that. I actually enjoy moving every five years. So if you look at my life, I move places or institutions every five years, which is uh-huh. not necessarily great for your CV, but is there great for? it's great for your life experience. So I'm Brazilian. I'm born and raised in Brazil, but I'm from an Italian family. So I do have Italian citizenship. And I always wanted to learn Italian. I always wanted to get to know better the, the culture of my family so we can... In, at the time in my personal life where I could just say, I'm leaving, I'm going wherever I want to go. When I had that window in my personal life, I decided to live in Europe for a year and a half. So I lived in Italy for a year and I, I did one rotation in, in the hospital in Treviso with Dr. Paolo De of Tissue. But other than Mm -hmm. that, I didn't do any medicine at all. I was studying arts, history, Italian. And I have an aunt that lives in Paris. So I lived with her for a while as well. And I love studying languages. I studied Italian, French for a number of years. So uh, it was a very exciting time for me. And I, I think that even in LA, when I arrived in LA, I was like, this is it. I love LA. I want to stay in LA. I don't want to move anywhere else. So that's my plan to stay in LA. But I must say that initially, I changed the institution because I was like, ah, this is not a perfect fit for me. Maybe a better opportunity comes around. I mean hopefully this is still gonna hold true a few years from now but i must say that once i join cedars is such a wonderful place that in my mind i want to stay here for good so i should stop the moving around
0: a little yeah, it seems like <laughs> you've got a pretty healthy case of wanderlust awesome well it was really good to meet you thank you so much for doing this I'll thanks for having me Natalie. great yeah, pleasure okay. talking
2: to you as well <laughs> have a good one touch. thank you okay, bye, bye.